You're listening to Festival Grass, a podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario and Shanae. Welcome, everybody, to the newscast. In this week's edition, Fire Festival podcast appearance reportedly lands Billy McFarlane in solitary confinement. Tomorrowland is planning a New Year's Eve virtual festival. Music and food festivals, first events Americans want to attend once restrictions are lifted, according to new Festival Pass and Fluent survey. Electronic Music Museum will offer immersive experience in Amsterdam. Live Nation faces lawsuit over teens drug overdose at hard summer. But first, Musician Union launches campaign to demand cent per stream payouts by Spotify. The United Musicians and Allied Workers Union has launched a vigorous crusade called Justice at Spotify, calling for the streaming giant to remit penny-per-stream payouts to artists, among other demands. The UMAW is crusading for major changes to Spotify's business model, which they contend is responsible for artists being underpaid, misled, and otherwise exploited by the company. According to their website, they state, As Spotify's valuation soars, we've seen no increase in our streaming payments. The company's closed-door contracts and payola schemes ensure that only musicians already on top with extensive resources can succeed on the platform. As COVID-19 economically devastates music workers everywhere, it's even clearer that Spotify's existing model is counter to the needs of the vast majority of artists. Despite Spotify's core goal to give a million creative artists the opportunity to live off their art, married musicians and music producers are in dire straits. In order to generate a dollar on Spotify, a song must be streamed 263 times. And to put that in perspective, it would take 786 streams to generate enough revenue to buy just an average cup of coffee. To pay the typical monthly rent in America, which is around $1,000, an artist needs to generate 283,000 reoccurring streams monthly. And to earn $15 an hour each month working full-time, it would take over 657,000 streams per member. Complete Music Update notes that streaming services generally pay over 65 to 70% of their revenues to the music industry. So even if they were to entirely relinquish their 30 to 35% cut, the penny percent payout rate would be highly unlikely for the company to remain solvent. CMU goes on to argue that the crux of the issue is actually low subscription rates, which if raised, wouldn't increase Spotify's revenue enough to meet these demands. Thoughts, Mario? Oh dear. I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, the issue, the crux of the issue is low subscription rates. They had the lowest churn. It was at 4% this year, that being the people who would unsubscribe from their service that they've ever had. And they're expanding in markets all over Europe. They just launched in Russia. The demand there skyrocketed because the consumer base was there waiting and desiring them and ready to log on and pay. (laughs) I mean, it's just incredible. I can't believe these people. Like this, listen, Shanae, they, I'm looking at their financial results. They put out a press release. So in the third quarter here, they were up 30% total active users from last year at this time. They're up in advertising or ad-supported streams. They're up in premium subscriptions. They're almost even in gross profit, but their operating costs are down. So they're up in free cash flow, which is $100 million in this quarter. That's almost 150% from this time last year. They are making a ton of money. That's why they were valued 
so big that we talked about this in the last episode earlier this year. This is criminal. I'm so happy that someone's going after them because they need to be more honest. They make statements like they want to support musicians. They are full of it. Bollocks. This is hogwash. They should be ashamed of themselves. I agree. I think that they're really not helping people, especially during a crisis. All of these artists that rely, really, they truly rely on the money they make from Spotify, they're getting nothing. And it's it's disgusting that a company can turn around and profit off of and exploit somebody else's work. Absolutely. Look, you even read it. Their core goal is to give a million creative artists the opportunity to live off their art. You know, one one last thing I will say about this. It's another case of the richer getting richer because it's true that the people who are really benefiting are the artists that are already popular and that have negotiated really good deals and are getting streamed already. Like they're they're in demand and, and that's that's where the audience is going to go first. And so for them, that kind of playing volume does make them money. It's just that when it's not a sliding scale amongst the artists and their achievements and their draw on the platform, it's just not right. They need to have a better system to be able to essentially tax the most popular artists more, give a boost to the supporting or to the artists that they are saying they want to help survive on basically nothing. All right. Live Nation must face a lawsuit in the case of a drug overdose that occurred at Hard Summer Music Festival back in 2015. The suit was originally filed in 2016. And after years of legalities, the case will finally be heard by a jury. So what happened was in 2015, Katie Dix, a 19-year-old girl, died of multiple drug intoxication after attending the event in Pomona, California. Her toxology report came back positive for MDMA and ethylone, which is a chemical referred to as bath salts. So the legal counsel for Dix's parents argue that Live Nation demonstrated negligence and a breach of their duties to protect people from distributing or consuming illegal drugs. According to the lawsuit, Hard Summer security members did not know how to react when they saw the young woman collapse, delaying a proper medical response for approximately 30 minutes, during which time she fell into cardiac arrest. The suit goes even further in alleging Dix could have been saved had she been given proper medical attention. Superior Court of Los Angeles County Judge Dan Thomas Oki has now ruled that an operator of electronic music festivals like Live Nation owes a duty of responsible care to a festival attendees, meaning Live Nation will now have to prove that they were not responsible for Dix's death in front of a jury. And just to show how deep this kind of culpability can go, Sinead, the lawsuit also includes the Los Angeles County Fair Association, which is the venue operator, and both the Los Angeles County, which is the owner of the fairgrounds, and the city of Pomona itself. It also claims that Live Nation oversold the event, and had insufficient police, security, medical staff, and drinking water. Wow. Everything that you've read, I can see where the lawsuit's coming from. I think that I've been to many festivals that, you know, aren't prepared for the crowd that they have, and they aren't prepared for harm reduction, not having enough water, not having staff trained correctly on how to handle people who are collapsing. I think that the family will get some level of justice through this lawsuit. But of course, that doesn't return the child. And uh, hopefully this just opens up the eyes to, especially Live Nation, for them to implement throughout any event that they co-own or put on themselves to have better harm reduction. Because even if it's not a negligence on like checking if people are bringing in drugs or 
whatever, because of course people can get as creative as they want to be and probably could effectively sneak in drugs no matter what kind of checks there are. But to just have staff trained properly and have a site that is safe enough that people can get the help that they need when they need it. Yeah, I mean, man, there's just so much here. Look, we're going to go into a deep dive about harm reduction in general. Overall, what really stands out to me is that it's damning for a festival to be told that they were oversold at the event and then they were limited and insufficient in their security, medical staff and drinking water. I mean, that is the least you can do. You as an event organizer, and this is just in general, run a festival like a disaster relief zone and cater to the safety of your participants. That's your number one job. And if you can't scale an event based on the tickets that you've sold, you deserve to get sued. Now, sadly, this isn't the first time Live Nation has faced these problems with illegal drug shit. Dix's death hasn't been the only one. That same festival, another person also died of a drug overdose, while the following year, there were three deaths when the event moved to a different location, Fontana. There were also deaths recorded previous to this in 2013 and 14. So they have dark stains on their harm reduction. There was even a more recent example of this at Bonnaroo, a similar drug contamination problem there in Tennessee. And it's actually known as one of the places where there's the most tainted drugs. And I just want to point out, Shanae, that we're going to talk a lot about why all festivals don't have drug testing and pill testing. And we know that down in Australia, we've covered it in previous reports, that Australia and now New Zealand's coming out because they're going into the summer music festival season and they are on the front lines of making sure that they have pill testing at their events. So something has to dramatically change here. Now, unfortunately, in Tennessee, drug testing paraphernalia is illegal. <laughs> Unbelievable. And there's this organization called the Bunk Police. Now, they have repeatedly tried to apply to Bonnaroo to get in there officially and have a booth a registered booth, but they've been ignored. So they crashed the party. But in 2019, Adam Ochter, the, the CEO, said that they basically got thrown out. And he's quoted here saying, I think everybody really knows what goes on at these events. It's no secret. We're not promoting drug use. We're making it safer for the people that choose to participate. He says that when they've done testing at Bonnaroo, they found 70 to 90% of the substances that they test have been adulterated with. And sometimes 30 to 50% of the time, they are actually totally fake. That is dangerous. That leads to death. This is such a huge problem. I don't understand, even for conservative states, and I don't care where in the world you are, if you want to preserve the life of your children and of your youth, you need to protect them. And harm reduction is the number one thing to do. I'll finish off by him saying this. So many young and uninformed individuals attend festivals for the sole purpose of having fun and using substances. They want to experiment. Many of them with next to zero information on the subject. Harm reduction is crucial. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to our Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. An electronic music museum will offer an immersive experience in Amsterdam. This is the world's first electronic music museum called Our House. Dance music is one of the biggest genres worldwide. Its origins, history, and legacy finally get the deserving honor and recognition. The museum will open its doors at an undisclosed location in Netherlands capital in the summer of 2021. Our House describes itself as an immersive tour through electronic music's origin and its transformation from a rebellious underground community to a global cultural phenomenon. 
Aside from a short teaser clip highlighting the words music, tech, and culture, and their promise for a -a one-of-a-kind experience, they haven't shared what that could look like yet. But they aren't the only music museum opening up in 2021 either, Mario. The Avicii Experience, a tribute to the late Tim Bergling, is set to open in Stockholm in 2021. This is fantastic. I mean, you know, we know we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland there in the U.S. and then the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is also in the U.S. They're all in the U.S. in Nashville. It's nice to see dance music being recognized as a powerful genre, which has a large culture and now a vast history. It's really good. Definitely. And I also just, I don't know if it's just my expectations based on what I've read, I can just picture it being like a huge installational art experience, which I'm all for. I think they're so cool. They can tell different stories through the different subgenres of music. And I just can't wait to see what it's going to look like. Yeah, 100%. And I think the next one after that is going to have to be the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. Would you like to be on the show if you or someone you know is a journalist with a relevant article topic or can speak to a story we have covered? Please click or forward the guest sign up link in the show notes. We'd love to have you on. Don't be shy. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. All right. Festival Fire podcast appearance reportedly lands Billy McFarlane in solitary confinement. Last week, we talked about a story, Shanae, where Billy McFarlane of Fire Festival Infamy had recorded interviews in 15-minute segments by using the prison phone for a podcast called Dumpster Fire. A trailer for this podcast was shared via Instagram, which included video and photos of McFarlane, as well as his fellow inmates on the prison grounds. Unfortunately for Mr. McFarlane, doing the interview has nonetheless landed him in hot water with the prison's administration, and he now reportedly has been placed in solitary confinement. Now, information from the conversations inside the podcast, which are corroborated and confirmed by his producers, say that McFarlane isn't going to be getting any money from this series, and that if there's any money generated, it will go as a contribution towards the $26 million that he defrauded from his fire Festival investors. Now, McFarlane's lawyer, James Russo, claims inmates at the Federal Correctional Institution Elkton in Ohio, where McFarlane is serving his sentence, are allowed to use the phones and all calls are screened by prison personnel, which leads me to believe that this was known about and that the reaction came after. Now, he says, we believe the investigation stems from his participation in the podcast and the photographs that were taken and utilized in the trailer, which were all properly taken. We don't believe he's violated any rule, and there can't possibly be anything else. He's been a model prisoner here. Yeah, I mean, like, my first reaction hearing that he was making this podcast was immediately, like, this is another get-rich-quick scheme because of the fame that Firefest has had and just knowing that even people who are just not really interested in that world still kind of want to know what really happened to Firefest because it was just such a terrible mess, honestly. But now that you've read what you've read and, you, and you've told me his phone calls get screened and he was allowed to be on the phone and all of these things, I don't think it's quite fair that, they're, that they've done this unless it's like for his safety for some reason. But yeah, it's a bit of a harsh, bit of a harsh treatment. And I especially am happy to hear that any money that was going to be made for that was going to go to the investors that were frauded. So if this is Billy's you know, way of restitution and trying to make things right for the people that he screwed over, 
I think, good on him. Look, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on. It's a fascinating story in its own right, because there's just some mystery and some, I don't know, some some oddity to the whole situation. I think what happened, from what it sounds like on the facts here, he was allowed to have these conversations. They were screened. I don't know if the people screening them, these would be the prison guards who are in charge of communication. They may have allowed it, but they didn't know that it was going to be used in a publication necessarily. And then maybe that caused a reaction, potentially even from outside of the prison, that put pressure down on the prison. Now, there is another worrying detail here, Sinead, because the New York Times picked up this story and they also made a report on it. In their article, it states that McFarland's cellmate is also reportedly in solitary confinement after he too took part in the podcast. I don't know if he was on the calls, but he was certainly in the photos. And it also states in this article that this wouldn't be the first podcast with contributors incarcerated and that McFarlane is an easy target. But the larger principles at play here, they say, are worrying. Maybe somebody got upset that he was allowed to have this kind of publicity or reach from prison where he should be repenting for his sins. There is also a a reaction here, which maybe sums all of this up in terms of potentially this being pressure from the outside. And that is by an FBI agent, John Casale, who worked on the case and called McFarlane a serial fraudster who defrauded over 100 investors without compunction. Tomorrowland is planning a New Year's Eve virtual festival. For those who didn't know or those who need a recap, Tomorrowland hosted a massive two-day virtual festival production called Around the World in July with eight stages and 60 DJs. Recently, they released a documentary, Never Stop the Music, The Creation of Tomorrowland 2020, which gives an intimate look into the making of Around the World. If you want to watch Never Stop the Music, you can find the link in the show notes. In addition to this documentary, Tomorrowland announced that they're doing it again. They're putting on a festival for New Year's Eve. Now, the first festival costs $10 million, $5 million after sponsorship and media fees, and they only broke even with ticket sales. Mikhail Beers, co-founder of Tomorrowland, told Billboard, we believe that digital will exist next to live. We also believe that we have to create moments that people really want to see live stream in a special way. And we really see it as a small event. What are your thoughts, Mario, on Tomorrowland putting on a second virtual production? Well, I'm all for it. They set the standard. You know, they pulled it together really quickly. They served their base well, their fans. They knew they had to do something and they took a big gamble. And I have the utmost respect for them. These are very unstable times, to say the least, for all industries and people in general. But the music industry and the music festival business has been absolutely tossed Listen, Tomorrowland, they're at the forefront of all of this. And for them to just break even and then double down and give people something to do for New Year's Eve that could potentially keep them indoors and away from large crowds, I think is even greater a service to humanity than people can imagine, honestly, because I know what I'll be doing on New Year's Eve. I'll have 10 people, which I'm allowed to have indoors at my studio, and I'm going to have the Tomorrowland New Year's Eve 3D show playing on a projector. That's I've decided. I When I read this story, this is what I'm doing. Because first of all, I don't want to go into big crowds. I just think it's not the right year for that. I think we need to take a break. 
We need to let the dust settle on this pandemic, whether we believe in it or not. We need to respect others and we need to keep people who are at risk. We need to keep them safe. We all have our part to play in that. But more than that, Shanae, I want to say something in regards to them not making a profit. I remember when we spoke about this story back in August and then did a follow up throughout September. I remember saying numerous times that I thought that they had made a really large profit. So I went back on my notes and I found the mistake. And I want to apologize to everybody because if there's anything we want to do here is definitely be thorough and not mislead people. But what had happened was the story that I was following from EDM.com, which I respect greatly. They're a very good news source for anything electronic dance music. And this was corroborated on many other uh, news newscasts or news sources was that they had had 1 million views. Now, what I thought that was saying was that they had actually sold 1 million tickets and someone had, I actually had written that down in my notes. And I think it's because I cross-referenced that number with a few other comments where people just sort of hyped up the story and I kind of got confused and, I, and, and then that's how I said it. Now, what was true is that they did have 1 million views. However, they didn't sell that many tickets. Often what would happen is one person would buy the ticket and then they'd have five to six or 10 other people watching it with them. So there was one purchaser and then multiple people who were viewing it, thus reducing the overall price of the ticket down to about two to three dollars per person. You know, I think that that made a dramatic change in the figures, obviously, because I thought they had, you know, made about a $10 million profit and that wasn't true. <laughs> the dream would be, I think, for them is to do really well this New Year's Eve. And I hope that everyone supports them. I know everyone might have lots of other plans. And clearly, you know, if you're going to have an event like I am, you know, I pay the ticket, it'll probably be $30. You know, that's $3 a person if I have 10 people. So maybe they have a tip jar. I don't know. It'd be nice to contribute a little bit more to this company. I think they're really leading the charge. Their heart's in the right place. And I'm really inspired by their entire organization. I just can't say enough about these guys. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, just another thing to point out, that is something I double checked when I had read the $10 million because I had also thought, I thought they had a million attendees, which the comment on views and unique views in the digital world are different. So if I have a like a registration code, a login to this event, every time I leave that website and then come back, it's a new view. So in addition to having, you know, my group of friends watching it with me, it would just be if I wasn't watching it for 24 hours straight. But if I just turned tuned in to different sets that I wanted to see each time, it would count as a view. Yeah. And so then the actual tickets sold or were around 200,000 to 250,000 paid the $24. And that number are the amount of people that they would have in one weekend had this been a physical event. And of course, there were over two weekends for a total of around 400,000 per season. You know, they canceled their uh, winter festival that comes up in March due to COVID, obviously, and uh, just being uncertain of the times that came out of saying they were just trying to be responsible here. But I think it's truly fear of the landscape. And we've covered this well in terms of insurance and just having large crowds and having to do massive testing. Is that even possible? I mean, a lot of people are playing to their audiences and 
really making promises that I don't think that they can keep. And we're going to have deep dives about all of this because we definitely want to get to the bottom of it so that not just ticket buyers understand what's up ahead, but also vent producers who listen to the show can kind of get of an idea about what the reality is here because we're cross-referencing a lot of knowledge and it could be very helpful to, to people who, who just don't have the time to do it because they're planning events. All right, Shanae, when it's safe to attend festivals and live events again, Americans are most eager to get back to music at 49% and food festivals at 37%, according to a recent survey. Now, this survey of more than 5,800 Americans says that Gen Xers and baby boomers are most eager to return to live music festivals compared to other generations. The youngest and oldest Americans are most interested in attending food festivals once live events return. The pop genre placed fourth at 9% on the list of music genres Americans are most excited to see, hip-hop at 40%, country at 30%, and rock at 15%. Now, they didn't include dance music here. Gen Xers at 32% and millennials at 29% say they miss live events and festivals the most followed closely by baby boomers at 24%. Overall, 43% of Americans are willing to return to any type of live event venue, whether indoor or outdoor, with Gen Xers leading the way. Now, this survey, Shanae, is being conducted by Festival Pass, which is the world's first live event subscription marketplace, and Fluent Inc., which is a leading data-driven performance marketing company We have a quote here by Ed Vincent, founder and CEO of Festival Pass. He says, we have received an overwhelming number of comments from our members and followers on their desire to attend a live event or festival. As event organizers continue to get creative with outdoor events, with drive-ins and limited capacity events, and the growing prospect of a vaccine in early 2021, this survey supports the growing pent-up demand for community and connection. The live event and festival industry will rebound quickly with proper protocols in place to keep attendees safe in 2021. Your thoughts on that, Shanae? I think that if companies can survive this current financial strain of not being able to put on their food festivals or music festivals, then once they finally can, uh, I don't think ticket sales will be an issue. I think that the real issue is just what do they do until that moment? Because if they can't stay afloat now, they're not there's not going to be those events in the future. But I can absolutely believe that everybody is ready to get back out there and wants to go to these events. I was just talking to my friend today that like, I really miss going to restaurants and I didn't really go to restaurants that often. But now that I can't go and reminiscing on the last time that I went, I I feel the, the need and the drive to go. So for sure, as soon as lockdowns are over for people and people can go back to these festivals, I I don't think ticket sales will be an issue. You know what next year is going to be like, Shanae? It's going to be exactly like a golf cart that has a governor on it. Now, governor prevents the golf cart from going very fast because, of course, you don't want this thing to just be ripping through your golf zones. If you take the governor off, those golf carts, they can go pretty fast. I think next year for festivals, they're going to have a governor put on them because they need to be kept small. There's going to be a lot of restrictions. There's going to be a lot of demands on them to do testing, whether that be before the event or on-site as well, or a combination of all of the above, creating bubbles. And they're going to have to be risking a lot with the lack of being covered by insurance with these communicable diseases that have been taken off the policies. In saying that, the demand on the consumer side, it's good to know that it's there. 
And all the festivals have to do is get through the slow zone next year and be ready for 2022 and even more so for 2023 because there's going to be an absolute explosion. People are going to want to go out like it's 1999. Now, there is a quote here by Matt Conlon. He's the founder and president of Fluent, who was a co-surveyist with this survey. And he says, we are happy to leverage our real-time survey capabilities to help businesses like Festival Pass better understand the shifts in customer sentiment and behavior as they plan ahead for 2021. Connecting with over 900,000 consumers daily via our owned and operated media properties, we capture unique insights and enable advertisers to make informed targeting and strategic decisions during this otherwise uncertain time. Now, I also want to say uh, to the audience here that we will have Ed Vincent, founder and CEO of Festival Pass, in one of our deep dives. So please stay tuned for that. That will be coming up very early in the new year. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye.